0: Hey now, we are getting over, and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. With the latest WWE edition of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, Getting Over is back once again, and for the first time in a long time, we have a regular WWE edition of the podcast for you. We're going to be breaking down everything that happened across SmackDown and Raw over the last week and some fallout, not only from WWE Payback on Saturday, but also AEW's firing of CM Punk and what that might mean for WWE. That means we have a five-segment show ahead for you today, and we are not going to waste any more time getting into it. Allow me off the top to remind you, that the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast is all about defy. So please, folks, stop being marks for yourselves and go back to being a mark for me. Go back to being marks for the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, Vintage, Chris Vanini, and yes, the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. Please visit Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave some five-star ratings on Apple. Take a little extra time and leave a five-star written review. If you do, we will read it live Right here on the show, just like the review I'm about to read, from D2Cowboy, who said, It's high time I leave this five stars. Two years ago or so, I decided to search out a professional wrestling podcast, and Getting Over was the first one I tried. I have supplemented with other podcasts from time to time, but this is the only one I listen to religiously. Adam and Chris are as good as it gets when it comes to objective review of professional wrestling, and they do it while also juggling full-time jobs covering college football. The amount of content they put out is impressive and a major help for when I need some holes filled, whether from shows that I miss or I don't have time to get into. Thank you for all of the awesome work you both do. D2Cowboy, thank you for that awesome review you just left. We appreciate you and we acknowledge you.
1: Acknowledge. Acknowledge. Big acknowledgement acknowledge. right there. Acknowledge. Acknowledge.
0: Let's also please remember to give us a follow on Twitter at getting overcast for episode drops, news, analysis, highlights, all of that good stuff. And please also realize I happen to love the number five. And I hope you all do as well, because for five dollars a month or 50 for the entire year, you can become an official getting overhead. Just visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over sign up. You will get bonus audio. You will get news posts, and your financial contributions will directly support the continuation of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. All right, Chris, that was a significant intro to get into today's show. I do need to tell you, uh, after 10 episodes of this podcast in the last two weeks, I thought I was going to come into today's show tired and lacking energy and focus, but So much happened on Raw Monday night. There's still so much to talk about coming out of SmackDown on Friday with John Cena. We have the CM Punk stuff. We have the Payback Second Look. I don't know, man. I'm fully pumped up for today's show.
2: Yeah, I mean, we have a... um, I feel refreshed. It was a busy week with a lot of wrestling and the first weekend of college football. That's all in the rear view, and we can just focus on what we've got here and... I'm excited to get into it.
0: I think that's a good way to put it. My mind feels like it's gotten right. Like I was so stressed and we had so much to do last week with both of those shows. And I should mention, by the way, if you missed our WWE payback instant analysis or our AEW all out instant analysis, where we also go deep on the firing of CM Punk, you don't want to miss those episodes. Those are in our podcast feed right now. You can go listen to them either before the show, if you want to pause or obviously after the show, once we are over, um, So yeah, you can go back and listen to those. But because there was so much stress and so much pressure, I think, on both of us coming out of the weekend, Monday with just one college football game and we didn't have to do much of anything during the day until raw at night, I just kind of felt relaxed and it was like a reset for me, which is great. And that's why I have that energy coming into today's show. So let's not waste more time. Like I said, it is a five-segment show here. We usually only run with three, but there's extra stuff to talk about. Let's get going with a second look at WWE Payback. Now, I don't have notes on every match, but there are a few things I wanted to talk about. And Chris, please feel free, of course, to jump in wherever you see fit. I wanna start with the cage match, obviously, between Becky Lynch and Trish Stratus. WWE posted an exclusive video of Trish Stratus getting a thank you, Trish, and you still got it chant after the match. She also posted some photos of herself after Payback, and she was all bruised up, like forehead, arms, Everything, we tweeted one of those if, if you missed it. Um, but every indication kind of seems to be telling us that she's not done. That wasn't a retirement match. Now, maybe she's gonna take a bunch of time off, but it seems like she's coming back and is not done with this wrestling thing. And I think that's great because Trish at Payback showed everyone in WWE, male and female, how to sell. Her sell job on the superplex off the top of that cage and the kickout that came after it, It's as good as it gets in wrestling. I don't care if you're in the Tokyo Dome. I don't care if you're in Madison Square Garden, male, female. It was perfect stuff from her. And I also want to say this about Becky Lynch. It is hysterical to me how people, when they talk about her wrestling skill, always start off like, well, she may not be the best wrestler, but okay, maybe Becky Lynch is not the most athletic women's wrestler out there, but there are no qualifiers necessary for her. She is a great wrestler, legendary overall, given her promo game, the characters and all that, but also individually great inside the squared circle as an actual wrestler. How many superb top-level matches does she need to have for people to give her the proper respect about her in-ring skill? Almost every major name in WWE has had their best or one of their best matches against her. And she's easily the best of the four horsewomen when you talk about a total package. Maybe she's second only to Sasha Banks when it comes to the in-ring skill. Bailey is extremely talented. Charlotte obviously has her moments and has put on incredible matches. But I promise you, on Saturday night, it was not 47-year-old Trish Stratus carrying Becky Lynch to a borderline five-star match. And Lynch does not get enough credit. It's Clearly frustrating to me. I wanted Chris to make sure I made that extremely clear on this podcast today.
2: Well, shoot. I said after that match, I think she might be the greatest of all times. So we, yeah. we, we are making sure we give her uh, the credit for that. I would put her ahead of Sasha Banks in the ring, too, because it doesn't feel like she's about to be severely injured whenever she goes to the match. <laughs> like it does with Sasha Banks. Uh, no, she, she's the total package. She can, can, can obviously do some high-flying stuff, can do the technical stuff. Feels like she has enough power, you know, just kind of behind what she does. Mm-hmm. It never feels like, like a skinny little girl out there trying to fight. When she fights with Charlotte, it feels real. Someone who's a lot bigger than her. So, yeah, no, she, she is on pace maybe to go down as the greatest of all time, just based on what she's done, what she can do and everything that goes with that. And you're right. I mean, women's match of the year last year was Becky Bianca at WrestleMania. Mm-hmm. This is women's match of the year.
0: So far, it's uh, top two, I I believe. Yeah, top two. At a minimum, top two, maybe number one. I mean, let's not forget, obviously, Rhea Ripley and Charlotte Flair was incredible at WrestleMania. And look, there are there better women wrestlers from an in-ring skill perspective? Sure, they exist. There's a number of them in Japan who are fantastic. You can make your cases about Asuka and Io Sky and Bianca Belair due to her athleticism. Sasha Banks, people love, of course. Rhea Ripley certainly is on it. She's 26 years old. She's on a trajectory where she could be the best maybe in-ring performer of all time. But it's that character and that promo that Becky brings to the table where she is unequivocally, without question, my favorite women's wrestler of all time. And if I was doing a GOAT list, she'd probably be number one on my Mount Rushmore at this point. I mean, it's almost incomparable what she's accomplished in America at this point. And again, it was just, I saw so many comments about, well, she may not be the best wrestler, but man, that was a great match.
2: No, 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 she, she is the best wrestler.
0: And yeah. Okay. Again, maybe that means
2: you had, that means, yeah, if you had a, wow, that was a great match. That means you're a great wrestler. That's how Again, like you said, she continues to have some of the best matches other wrestlers have ever had. Like there's a reason. Like it's not incredible that she has athleticism. It's not, it's not just athleticism. It's about telling a story. And she does that.
0: Yeah, like no one's going to sit out here and tell you that like Steve Austin is better in the ring than let's say Eddie Guerrero, for example. But who's a better wrestler all time? Don't Steve Austin is. He's bigger. And I'm not just talking about box office and sales and all that. It's, it's everything. It's captivating the audience, telling stories in the ring, all those types of things. Becky is just number one in, in so many of those areas that sure, maybe the athleticism isn't there. But. That, that doesn't make her not a great wrestler and it doesn't mean that her having great matches is surprising. I am never surprised when I see a good Becky, good to great to incredible Becky Lynch match. And guess what? She didn't just do it Saturday. She also did it that Monday against Zoe Stark in the Falls Can Anywhere match. when she, It was a handicap match and she was great. So I don't know yeah. what other proof people need here, but I wanted to give Becky her flowers um, and I'm glad we did it in this spot here. Uh, other takes from Payback. I wanted to note that Kevin Owens' crimson mask. We were unsure about that. It was indeed from a hard way. Dominic Mysterio put an elbow right into his forehead. I missed it initially. Also, I missed that the guys had hockey gloves in addition to the jerseys and sticks, which kind of made that part even more ridiculous. But I truly loved that match. It was an absolute bat blast. Rewatching the finish, Chris, I wondered if they could have done like a double cover and split the titles that way. Adam Pierce could have explained it in kayfabe, but the match would have been Far, far less satisfying if that was the finish. So ultimately, for me, they made the right decision. It was just so enjoyable to sit and watch that without having to take notes the second time around.
2: Yeah, my only other thing I'd add is something, a little thing I found interesting. The photos for the match on WWE.com. Are they black and white? all the ones with blood were black and white Yeah, yeah. They always do and it kind of really took away from what would I have know. been some, they got some really great photos in there. The photo team is spectacular, but they're black and white without the blood. And it takes away from some really good photos. AEW put up their all out photo gallery and it doesn't, it's not black and white for the blood shots. And it just well, looks better. I tweeted yeah. out the all out instant analysis with the bloody Ricky Starks. Like it just, it looks better. So just to, uh, I understand why they do it and whatnot, but, uh, Good photos that would have been even better if they were in color.
0: Yeah, I get so frustrated at that stuff. Now, people can reverse engineer it these days. Um, You know, there are people who take like old timey black and white photos from like, you know, the 40s or, or 20s or wherever and put them in color. So theoretically, you can get those photos in color. But I agree not having like the natural, real, you know, full photo from WWE. Super frustrating. Uh, Some other notes, the especially
2: considering how often, especially considering how often they do the Bloodstone Stone Stone Cold Steve Austin, that iconic image that don't work in black and white, man.
0: Yeah, you're totally right. Uh, The LA Knight pop was sick. That's really all I have to say. Just the the pops for him were ridiculous. Uh, The J Uso moment. What a reception for him. His presentation was perfect. Not sure if this was purposeful, but he was wearing gray, which is right in between the normal black and white that he wore previously. I think it was just a coincidence, but it's something I noticed. Obviously, there have been a ton of comparisons over the last like year between Rhea Ripley and China, But Rhea, I missed this totally on Saturday night, honored China with her gear at Payback. I also noticed for the first time that she sang along with her entrance as she walked out, which I love when wrestlers do that. It is so damn cool. And because hers is like a heavy metal type of like brooding theme, seeing her do it, was even cooler in the moment. I also wanted to give a shout-out to Samantha Irvin's ring announce for Ripley, which was simply outstanding. It was the first time she did it in that way. Sam was great, all show as usual, but she knocked it out of the park for Rhea. Uh, Raquel Rodriguez, she's really not lived up to expectations since joining the main roster, but I saw people criticizing her, like she's Jade Cargill or something in the ring. She's still extremely capable. Okay, maybe she's not gonna wind up being a top-of-the-division star, it does seem pretty obvious that's the case. That's okay. Not everyone is going to be a main eventer and a champion. She's six years older than Rhea. If WWE, at a minimum, gets a handful of strong years out of her as a mid carter works her into the women's tag team title division like they did previously, that's going to be totally fine. And lastly, uh, they were tough to spot initially, but Seth Rollins had pinstripes on his pants, which honored the pants that Bray Wyatt wore as The Fiend. So I just wanted to throw all those out there, Chris. Anything on what I just said or anything on your own?
2: I did not catch the Rhea Ripley homage to China. I thought it looked different for her. Like so, I could tell like something was a little bit different about how Rhea looked. That's really, really cool. Glad they did that. Uh, I'd also noticed Rhea singing her entrance, not like singing it. Like she's the one doing the voice, but just singing along to it. Yeah. I think it, yeah, I think I I love the song. I, I included it on my top five workout songs we did a couple weeks back. So that was really cool. Um, and yeah, my thoughts on Raquel have, have been the same as I've, as I've said many times.
0: All right. So let's move on to the other major topic that we need to discuss before we get into the SmackDown and Raw of it for WWE. This whole notion that now that he has been fired by AEW, CM Punk could possibly be on his way to WWE. Now, this obviously could be an extremely involved conversation, but we have a lot to discuss today. And CM Punk to WWE does not seem to be something that would happen soon if it happens at all. But it is worth addressing here. And let me start off with the most unsurprising take that you're going to hear on this podcast. I would not do it. I mean, you know I would not do it for all the reasons I've stated over the last year. But the question we actually need to pose here is twofold. Should WWE do it? And if so, how should WWE do it? So, should they? I don't think they should. Not now while things are going smoothly. They are setting gate and merchandise records. They there are more wrestlers, faces and heels right now that are completely crazily over with the crowd to extremely significant degrees than WWE has had in at least a decade, if not longer. Ratings, yes, are about to go down with NFL competition, but creative is still getting extremely high marks and has been for more than a year now. They simply do not need him. A couple years ago, they definitely could have used him. I think it was Triple H who previously was quoted as saying, let him be their headache. That's probably where this sits. Punk would have no leverage in WWE. There's no one for him to push around. There's not an actual need for WWE to have him. And you risk upsetting the locker room unnecessarily if you bring him in. I mean, consider this from Seth Rollins just a couple of months ago.
1: Oh, Philly Phil, stay away. Stay away, you cancer. Get away from me forever. Yeah, no, I don't like Phil. I don't like Phil. He's a jerk. Oh, did we just figure that out? Did we just figure that out? No, everybody in the room like, is like, oh, no, dude, did he say that? Yeah, no, he's a jerk. Come on. We figured it out over there. We
0: knew it over here. I don't want him back. Go do something else. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. See you later. I mean, the way he jumped out of character in that interview and slipped into calling him you cancer is... It's amazing, obviously, but knowing Rollins and his level of professionalism, okay, if they hired Punk, he'd probably work with him either way, but this is the feeling, at least for some people behind the scenes, and obviously, you know that Rollins is close with John Moxley and Renee Paquette, who I'm sure have clued him in on the AEW backstage situation and what happened with Punk and probably other things as well. So do you really want to risk upsetting talent like Rollins and Kevin Owens and others just to put Punk on your TV for a thumb in the eye at AEW. The only thing with WWE is that the management structure is so strong that it would make WWE probably the only environment in which Punk could thrive, hopefully without major issue. At least one would think. The only way I would ever suggest bringing CM Punk back, if like WWE were to ask me, I would say, number one, If you start slumping in a significant manner and you need a boost, okay, then maybe you look that way. But then two, the scenario that you bring him back would be the old Brock Lesnar mercenary contract. Not what Lesnar has been doing recently, the prior deal he had with Vince McMahon, where he would arrive at an arena at 7 p.m., open Raw at 8 p.m., cut a promo, and leave the building. Then you do the same thing two weeks later, and then you put him on the pay-per-view. He has a match, and he leaves the building when the match is over. That is the only way it could work. But even then, Chris, the best thing about Punk is his ability to cut promos. And giving him a live mic is the most dangerous thing that WWE could possibly do. Again, locker room morale at WWE right now is higher than it's been in a while. And chances are, with this Endeavor deal, which, spoiler alert, is probably going to get closed before Crown Jewel happens, if not Survivor Series, there will probably already be some type of cutbacks that are going to bother people. This to me is definitely not the time to invest in CM Punk and certainly not the time to take that risk. But again, if it ever does happen, those would be my parameters.
2: My thought on this is the same thought I had when we discussed whether or not he should come back to AEW. I would love for CM Punk to go to WWE. I think you could do a lot of big money feuds. I think you could get a lot of mileage out of it but from a business standpoint or from an organization standpoint i absolutely think they should not do this <laughs> for all the reasons that you said now look yes cm punk had a bad falling out with wwe yes he they had a lawsuit and it got really ugly mm-hmm. but remember cm punk did sort of come back to wwe via fox on that backstage show mm-hmm. a number of years ago so it's not impossible the problem is since then CM Punk shows he can absolutely not be trusted as an employee. You know, like he's literally getting in multiple fights, calling out talent time and time again. Now doing his own dirt sheet leaks, probably. And then he endangered the safety of the boss of the company. Like there's no there's no way you can do it. Like, I'd like to think, hey, Kevin Owens, CM Punk, think about what you could do with that. Or Kevin Owens, Seth Rollins. There's really, like you always like to say, like, mm-hmm. never say never. You can always get over something and come back. But this is just purely from a business organization standpoint that this dude clearly cannot be trusted. I know he showed up back at WWE what a few months ago, remember, and he was making mm-hmm. amends with some people like The Miz, supposedly. Um, but You mean the guy, you mean the guy he he told to suck suck up,
0: the guy he told to suck up blood money covered dick? That guy? Yeah. He made amends with him.
2: Apparently that guy. Yeah. I think things have changed a little bit, even since CM Punk's last suspension with what happened at all in Mm -hmm. there's just, there's no way you can trust him.
0: Yeah. I think that's the, the base of the entire thing. You'd have to create such parameters that would be so ridiculous and a contract that would have such financial penalties, if he was to say this or that, that he would never agree to it. I mean, look, again, in wrestling, you never say never, right? Ultimate Warrior came back. Bret Hart came back. Everyone seems to come back. And maybe WWE for WrestleMania 41 or 42 or 43, a host in Chicago. And it makes sense to bring Punk back and put him in the Hall of Fame. And he goes with a sting contract and he does one match, one feud. You know, maybe that's what it is. But right now, the idea of taking advantage of the new cycle and bringing CM Punk in, I I think that's a non-starter. I really do. Speaking of WWE and CM Punk, just to move past this, Chris, to put Punk's AEW run in perspective, okay, his entire tenure with the company came inside Roman Reigns' run with the Universal Championship. How crazy is that? (laughs) Remember,
2: Roman Reigns put the needle mover shirt on because he said he actually moves the needle and people like CM Punk don't correct. You know, that's where that came from. Mm-hmm. And and wh- one other thing you mentioned, like another thing about, you don't need CM Punk for competition reasons in the sense that he ain't going back to AEW, you know, like, <laughs> right? there was a conversation to be, there was a conversation to be had six months ago. Hey, if WWE could pull CM Punk away from AEW, he ain't go back to AEW. There's nothing left. <laughs> right. So, right you can take him or leave him. It's almost like
0: a it's almost like a no benefit situation. Like you're not angering the yeah. competition anymore, you're not getting one over on them. You know, taking Cody was a big deal if if WWE in like a year's time takes Ricky Starks from AEW, that's a big deal. It's a young talent It's someone they can build. It's it's hurting the other company because there's someone coming off of their show. Punk's already off the show. You know, he's not going back. So mm-hmm. the benefit of bringing him in I mean again yeah maybe your ratings would go up for a couple of weeks and then I think it would tail off just like it kind of did in AEW it got stale. Collision was Collision was doing 400,000 viewers. Now it's Saturday night, yes, and it has a lot of competition, but if CM Punk was that big of a needle mover, it wouldn't do 400,000 viewers no matter what the competition was. Whereas Roman Reigns, you put him on something, clearly people are watching it. Let's get away from CM Punk. Let's get into WWE. We're going to talk about everything that happened on SmackDown that did not directly have to do with Payback and of course the entirety of Raw. But first, a little preview of both. Chris, SmackDown for me, I thought was a successful go-home show for Payback, especially because it was a very Raw heavy card and there was only so much to go home to on Friday night. Overall, I thought it was the best go-home week for WWE TV in an entire year under Triple H. And then Raw on Monday night, I mean, dare I say it, I know you were a little distracted with college football. I watched it as well, but Raw, I think it was flawless. I don't mean to suggest that we won't have notes or gripes for the show, but there was not a single segment Monday that did not belong. We got two different show-long storylines that weaved together, actually, and everything seemed to hit. The, The three hours flew by for me, this despite Cody Rhodes. Becky Lynch and L.A. Knight not appearing on the episode. And Cody was even in the building. He did a dark match, but he was unused creatively on TV. Those are three of your top stars. And yet, I think this may have been Monday among the top TV episodes of the entire year, any brand, and it may well have been the best Raw of the year.
2: Yeah, I can't, I don't have enough in my head to remember better episodes of Raw or worse episodes, but it was a very, very solid episode. The Like you said, the lack of star power did kind of stick out to me, but because the main event, the Intercontinental Championship match was so good because we did get Seth Rollins and Shinsuke doing something in there because Judgment Day got to show off having all of the gold. It didn't feel like there were many holes where it was like, oh, you know, this is clearly where you would throw Cody Rhodes in or something like that. So in that sense, you're right. The go home and the fallout, Extremely good. Now it helps that it was only a six-match card, mm-hmm. but I, I think there is something to build off of that. After, like we said, for a while, a lot of not great go-home shows for Triple H, um, but this for this pay-per-view, they did a good job.
0: If they, I mean, look, they have Fastlane coming up in four weeks. If they repeat this process over the next month, that takes WWE through its toughest stretch of the year. And then boom, they're building for Crown Jewel and Survivor Series in the Royal Rumble. So it's going to be really interesting to see what we get over the next month. I should also note right before we get into our first major standard segment here on getting over, uh, Raw also debuted a new intro that was really damn cool. We posted it on Twitter if you missed it, so you can go back and watch. It notably included Trish Stratus and Johnny Gargano. Cody Rhodes was in it briefly in the middle, which was also interesting. More on that later. With all of that said, let's get into it. You know how we kick off our WWE breakdowns here on the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. We do it by sliding into the main event. This is the main event. And we do have an extended main event segment. It's definitely at least a co-main event because we're talking SmackDown and Raw separately, but so many different things involving so many different people happened. We're gonna try to throw it all together for you. So let's start with SmackDown. John Cena opened the show to a explosive pop as he made the first of eight appearances over a nine week span. He said he wanted to spend the rest of his career giving back to the WWE universe. Jimmy Uso interrupted with a new entrance theme. It started off kind of lame, but then it became a banger. Fans chanted, we want Jay right away. Jimmy was angry. Cena was there saying they came to hear from him, not John. Jimmy repeated that he cost Jay the title because he loves him and doesn't want him corrupted like Roman Reigns or John Cena. Jimmy clown Cena for his clothes and said, Cena is just like Reigns because they take, 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 except Cena does it with a smile. Cena shot back that the wrong Uso quit WWE, so Jimmy tried a superkick, Cena caught it, hit an attitude adjustment. I should also note here that Cena said after SmackDown on a social media promo that he's been training and will be competing during this run. He also noted that insurance issues previously prevented him from doing stuff during his one-off appearances. No surprise there. So when they announced Cena coming back, I would not have guessed that he would get into it with Jimmy, of all people. It was undoubtedly a hot segment, but it also kind of came out of nowhere for them to be at odds with each other, especially given Jimmy really should not be losing to anyone except Jay. Now, maybe they do feud and John puts him over. That would be immensely interesting, but it was a hot start to the show, a fire back and forth between them, and It was probably Jimmy's best individual in-ring segment in months as he's been really struggling on the mic recently. I liked the way he came across deluded and convinced that he's the one who knows what's right. He was poised and composed and he delivered. Plus, Cena impacted the show without doing that much.
2: Yeah, it felt fresh. It felt new. Mm -hmm. Hey, John Cena, Jimmy Uso promo battle here. like. Boom, that's, that's something new. I'll take that. I'm interested in it. And it really felt like one of those spots where John Cena's like, I'm putting you on the spot here. Let's go and see what you got. Sinker. And smile. that's always a really fun, that's a really fun John Cena. I think Jimmy did okay. I don't know if it was as much, it wasn't as much like his delivery as it was what he had to work with, which wasn't much. But I did like this. I'm very intrigued by Cena being uh, available to wrestle. And so far, everything we've gotten from him is exactly what I have wanted from a John Cena run, which is interact with new talent, put people over and be fun. And that's exactly what we're getting.
0: You're right. He's been nailing his role in those two appearances that he's made so far. No question about it. Actually, three appearances, but we'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, Jimmy was furious backstage and later interrupted Adam Pierce, who was talking to Mia Yim and admonished him for being rude to everyone backstage And that was like the entirety of what Pierce had to tell him. You're being rude. Uh, Meechan later complained to the OC about it. AJ Styles promised to handle it. Styles got in Jimmy's face about it later and shoved him to the ground only to get attacked from behind by Solo Sokoa. Solo told Jimmy, quote, you're out of the bloodline when we say you're out of the bloodline. But Jimmy snapped back that no one can tell him shit and he stormed out of the building. Styles then said in an interview he wanted Sokoa one-on-one. Good Brothers told Styles not to bother but Michin got his back and wanted him to get the match. I love the back and forth with Jimmy and AJ. It was really intense and heated. And Jimmy continued to like overcompensate for his station right now. It actually felt like it was an older guy not taking the shit of a younger dude. And then Sokoa comes in, just destroys Styles, and comes across like the older brother when he's obviously the younger brother. It's not often that short backstage segments pop me, but I thought this one was extremely well done.
2: Yep. Very simple, short and sweet. And the any interaction between Solo and and other USOs about this kind of stuff and their brotherly relationship is something we never really dove into. Mm -hmm. And now Jay's gone, so like there's still there's a chance to do this, and I'm intrigued.
0: So we'll move to the match: Styles against Sokoa. This main evented with Paul Heyman entering after a couple minutes. Styles got flung downward with his back drilling the bottom of the ring post from inside. Then Sokoa hit a belly to belly suplex. Styles came back with a Pele kick and his signatures only for Solo to catch him with a pop-up Samoan drop. Styles hit a springboard moonsault. Sokoa halted Styles' clash. As Styles went for a phenomenal forearm, Jimmy ran in to trip him on the top rope with Solo hitting the Samoan spike for the win. Heyman looked stunned as Jimmy hugged Solo from behind, only to get choked by him. Paul stopped Solo from delivering the spike, and they left with Jimmy super-kicking Styles and hitting an Uso splash to end the show on top. Heyman called Roman Reigns, while Michael Cole pontificated that it sure looked like Jimmy wanted back in the bloodline. Now, I'm sure that's what WWE wants us to believe, for now, but it would make no storyline sense, particularly after Jimmy's promo to open SmackDown and the backstage segment with Solo. So surely it's a swerve of some kind, at least let's hope it's a swerve of some kind, because if it's not, it would be nonsensical. It was good to see Styles and the OC back involved in something substantial for a change, And they can certainly turn this into Styles and Cena versus Jimmy and Solo, or Styles versus Jimmy, perhaps for Fastlane next month. I'm not sure if you noticed Cena's new gear. It's a take on the Gulf Oil logo, so it's car-themed to some degree. Anyway, it would work if they go in that direction, leading to Styles reigns at Crown Jewel in November. That would be a nice signature match against someone not involved in the bloodline, and a good way for Roman to defend his title at the Big Blood Money in the Sand show, that's in November. And you could also potentially do Jay and Jimmy on that show, or now, based on the other things that we learned, it seems like they may stretch that out to WrestleMania. That's how I contextualized all this, Chris, coming out of SmackDown.
2: Yeah, I don't think Jimmy is joining the bloodline, but I'm very interested and excited to have AJ Styles have something to sink his teeth into again. Mm -hmm. He's just kind of been floating around for a long time, We've always thought AJ versus Roman on SmackDown would be a good main event title match. So it appears we may head down that road. I also think it was notable uh, AJ Styles growing the beard out mm-hmm. in a big way. He's really letting that thing go. Looks a little different. So, yeah, again, this was something new. It was a different interaction than we normally see. And I'm excited when we get stuff like that.
0: What other thing here? I was floored seeing the reaction to this online. It seems like people are in a mode now where they want to automatically hate the bloodline stuff to the point that they almost have an inability or an unwillingness to differentiate between Jimmy's feelings for Roman, his cousin who has manipulated, abused, and gaslit him, and his feelings for Solo, his younger brother, who has largely not done that much wrong to him. I saw tons of this makes no sense tweets on Friday, and look, Maybe I'm wrong, but I thought I understood it quite well watching Smackdown live. And I'm just confused at how so many people didn't see it the same way I did and took Michael Cole's word of, oh, I can't believe Jimmy's turning heel again and rejoining the bloodline. Like, I mean, again, maybe that does happen, but I, I really don't think it is.
2: No, they would have done that whatever a week or two ago when when Roman said, you're back in the bloodline. What do you want? I'll give you anything. Right. And he said no. much." <laughs> So like no, we're the point is to make you think that as a possibility, right? But no, I, it would make it wouldn't make any sense like because
0: Jimmy's in this tweener mode where he exited the bloodline, but he yeah. also turned on Jay, but Solo is still his brother, so he's supporting Solo, but probably does not want to support Roman. So you could see Jimmy and Solo team up because they're brothers, but it again wouldn't make sense for him to rejoin the bloodline. So I I just think people were. They everyone was looking. I I still maintain this. I said this after SummerSlam. They were looking for a reason to turn on this storyline. WWE gave them one because the end of the SummerSlam match was terrible. And now everything
2: that happens is bad. And it's just like, it's not. (laughs) Here's the thing. Yeah. I think the fact that Jay is now gone to Raw, like completely closes that chapter of the story. It is now onto a new chapter of the bloodline. And that focus is on Jimmy. Now Jimmy is the one with a crisis of confidence. Jimmy is the Mm -hmm. one who doesn't know what to do. He has all these different relationships. And we have to just kind of adjust after like months, maybe a year of of the J story or a couple years of the J story and everything that they did for that. The J story is done now. Like now it's the Jimmy story and we're just going to have to get to get used to that different pace and that different kind of style. And I think that's just an adjustment.
0: I would say rather than it being done now, I'd say it's done for now because clearly they will do yeah, Jay yeah, and yeah. Jimmy. And I think it's very similar. This is what I, I had mentioned previously uh, with Jay going over to raw, which we'll talk about next. It's very similar to what they did with Ray Mysterio, where they took him away from Dominic. They gave them multiple months where they did their own thing. And then it came together came together again before WrestleMania where they had their singles match. It seems to me to be almost the exact same formula with Jimmy and Jay. Yeah, they could be. All right, let's move over to Raw. As you mentioned, Jay Uso opened the show as the newest member of the roster. He came through the crowd and straight up looked like a star, a main eventer in more than nickname only. Michael Cole dropped this line, quote, Cody Rhodes used to be an EVP. I guess he can get things done hysterical, and Cody acknowledged it on Twitter <laughs> as well with a tip of the cap. Uh, Jay was so intense, he actually had to catch his breath before doing the welcome to Monday night raw bit. Jay said it became too much fighting his family every single week on national TV, but Cody opened the door for him. Sammy Zayn came out saying people backstage will have a problem with him being there, but he's happy for him, and he's proud he broke free of Roman. Sammy offered a hand. Fans chanted, hug it out. Jay just stood there and didn't do anything. He was playing around because as Sammy was exiting, Jay goes, hey man, that wasn't very oozy of me to leave you hanging. And then Sammy came back in and they hugged to a huge pop. Drew McIntyre then entered as Jay was exiting up the ramp. Drew stared him down, so Sammy separated them. Then Matt Riddle came out and Sammy did the exact same thing. I thought this was a brilliant opening to Raw. Jay got started on the right foot. He reconnected with Sammy. So we have that friendship that can grow again. Then you have the acknowledgement that Jay doesn't get to escape his past sins just because now he's a babyface and he's changed brands. Meaning he may not be feuding with the heels, but possibly babyfaces, or he may be feuding with both simultaneously. He thought going to Raw would free himself from the bloodline, but now Raw superstars are gonna wanna take out all of their bloodline frustrations on him. It wasn't the best promo in terms of content, But from a storyline perspective, an atmospheric perspective, it more than got the job done. And I thought it was fantastic.
2: I thought it was really well done. It it set up everything it needed to set up. It kept in all the context. It kept in all the past references and things that happened, like you said. and, And it's unclear where it goes. I'm still just kind of eh on the whole like. Jay Uso is back and got to Raw and Cody made it happen type of thing. It just, it felt like a shortcut in a storyline that never really takes shortcuts. Um, I mentioned this on the payback uh, instant analysis, but I thought we could get more from Jey Uso being away from WWE. If he was supposed to be quitting WWE Instead, he just comes back and this is like, all right, like, all right, like that was fine. Everything in this was good. I still just feel like they missed an opportunity to do something a bit more, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to harp on them for Mm -hmm. not doing something as opposed to what they did
0: do, which was fine. The only thing I honestly think they could have added would be one week where we see Cody on the phone backstage, like trying to convince someone of something and we don't know what he's doing. And then we find out the next week that this happened. But let's not forget the episodes that preceded this. And we don't know what was initially planned for Jimmy on SmackDown two weeks ago. And we don't know what was planned for Raw. Um, you know, we had the Bray Wyatt tribute episodes and they changed their creative plans. So it is possible there was a thread that they skipped before they came back to this. But again, for me, it doesn't matter because it was so similar to what they did with Rey Mysterio, where randomly he showed up on SmackDown and, and Triple H called him into his office and convinced him to sign that deal. Yes, Jay quit publicly on TV, no question. He kind of addressed it. He goes, yeah, I was only gone for two or three weeks, but I'm back. So yeah, you're right. Maybe there was a shortcut. I don't care at all. It was entertaining. Uh, Judgment Day celebrated their gold with Finn Balor and Priest laughing together when Dominic Mysterio got his ass completely booed. It was so smart to have him open the promo and speak for as long as he did, getting heat. I just loved it. Uh, Balor put over everyone and made amends with Priest. He also shouted out JD McDonough for having his back and himself for becoming Grand Slam champion. Fans chanted, you deserve it. Ripley was proud of them being a family, but she was angry that the focus was on Jay not them. She said the bloodline has fallen and Judgment Day has risen as the most dominant faction in WWE. That is accurate. Uh, McDonough entered with Priest saying he actually appreciated his up on Saturday, so JD better not screw it up. McDonough agreed with Ripley that change was needed in Judgment Day. He told Priest, you got to get rid of the briefcase because you guys have all the gold already. In fact, JD had a custom purple and silver Money in the Bank briefcase, and Priest loved it. So then Sammy interrupted. He was angry that it took all five of them to beat him and Kevin Owens. He called out Dom specifically. JD spoke and said, taking Sammy's challenge. Damian Priest was first really bothered that JD was speaking for them, but then he was kind of impressed that he stepped up and took the match on their behalf. Priest's acting was the key to this entire segment. He knocked it out of the park both times where he had to show disdain for McDonough, only to be like pleasantly surprised by him. Beyond that, I thought it was great to see a faction operate like this. I cannot believe we went a decade without significant factions in WWE. The storytelling with J.D. McDonough was on point. The whole group came across well, especially with Ripley putting Judgment Day over the bloodline. Maybe it's just me. I thought the redesign of the briefcase could have looked a little cooler. That's literally the only note I have on the
2: entire segment. I'm really glad that we got this moment again to just emphasize and show us that they have so much gold. There are very few factions that can ever claim that, you know, like DX, the, the, the McMahon Helmsley kind of DX era. There was uh, the Hurt business a bit and the bloodline, but like not many factions in history have that much gold. And it's a really, really cool and special thing. So I'm really glad they tried to kind of, punctuate that with Rhea saying the bloodline has fallen and we are the most dominant faction, which is true. The bloodline's not a faction anymore. It's two people and a manager, <laughs> you, know, you know? Right. So, like, it's a, it, was important to, it was important to say that. And I like the purple money in the bank briefcase. I think the senor part, like, <laughs> painted over as a sticker is kind of weird looking. Th- that labeling kind of hasn't really stuck with me, but I think it looks great. It fits great. I was wondering, as we talked about on the instant analysis, if we were going to get new tag team belts Mm -hmm. soon and make them purple or something, because now, now that we have that, so we'll see. I love Damien, like Damien Priest disdain, as you said, it's very, very funny because the way he reacts to being interrupted. So he's talking and JD McDonough's music comes out. And instead of just like waiting for JD to get to the ring, like a normal wrestling promo, he's just talking over the music. Like JD, get out of here. What are you doing? No, no, just talking. <laughs> Don't ruin music. this I dude.
0: You got me liking you a little bit.
2: Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then when Sammy Zayn's music hits while he's talking, He turns and spikes the microphone. Yes. Yes. Yes, he did. Another real good punctuation to that. So really good job by Damien Priest on that. My only other thought that note that I have, I may or may not have said this before, and I'm going to try not to repeat it, but it's just it's always bothering me. J.D. McDonough's head is too big for his body. Yeah. And it just looks a little weird. So. He's a Funko Pop. That's, That's what know, they say. As we comment, as, as we comment on looks, he's just it's a it's a big head for kind of a normal size body. I don't, there's nothing you can really do about it, but just wanted to say it.
0: He's it's not like, only a Funko Pop. Anyone who used to play NFL Blitz, you could do the big head mode, the special code. That's what he looks like. He looks like one of those. Hmm. So yeah. All right. Uh, so backstage in the Judgment Day Lounge after this segment, Balor suggested they bring McDonough into the group officially. Pre said he wanted JD to prove himself more. Dom passed off the decision, to, hey, whatever you guys want, and Ripley said they should pause and see how he does against Zane. Rhea also said offhandedly to Dom, hey, we also have something we need to talk about. Uh, Balor and Priest agreed to let JD prove himself, and they left to help with Rhea telling Dom, make sure everything goes smooth. So we got Zayn against McDonough. Sammy hit a great Mishinoku driver. Dom pulled JD out of the ring to save him from a luvikik. So Zayn attacked Dom outside, And in that extended distraction, McDonough rolled up Sammy for the win. Enraged, Zayn attacked Dom after the bell with an exploder. JD then saved Dom before Huluva kick in a parallel sequence to what had just happened, telling him to get out of the area. So Dom runs to the back. McDonough gets caught with the exploder and Huluva kick, and Dom did not look back to help a second time. I thought getting JD a win over Sammy was significant. They protected Zayn enough in the process. It was strange that Jay. Never came out, though, because he was backstage the entire time. He had made amends with Sammy. He knows the bloodline, not the bloodline, the uh, Judgment Day, uh, was angry at him. And he knew Sammy had a match. So Sammy's getting beat two on one. It felt like Jay should have come out there.
2: Yeah, but I think the point of the segment, though, was that JD McDonough is helping the Judgment Day. And the Judgment Day is not helping him. Yes, like, like, of course, you didn't need you didn't necessarily need Jey Uso in there. And you didn't want to you did not want the story. The main focus coming out being, oh, Jay and Sammy are together. Totally. Will they Maybe a tag team. What will Kevin Owens think it that for that was the earlier sec- that was the earlier thing. This was about, hey, J.D. helped out Dom and Dom didn't help out him. And, and so as far as a Judgment Day segment goes and J.D. McDonough's place in it, I, I think it all worked for that exact reason.
0: You're completely right about that. I'm just saying it was a plot hole because he was there and he was literally standing backstage as we saw, you know, a little while later um, when Judgment Day approached. So let's get into uh, more of what happened here. Balor tried to put McDonough over to Priest backstage after he won the match. Damian acknowledged that he did well. Dom then splintered off from their celebration to go talk to Jay, who, like I said, was hanging backstage. He tried to level with him both from you know, them being from messed up families with Hall of Fame fathers. Jay was looking around expecting an attack the entire time. I thought that was great. Uh, Dom said (laughs) Jay has come from a broken family and no one likes him, just like no one liked Dom. He pointed out how everyone is equals in Judgment Day and he could get Jay into the family if he wants. Dom actually did pretty well here. And while we all know the outcome is going to be Jay saying no and probably feuding with them, I thought it was an intriguing development. Drawing the parallel between the two was just one of many smart storytelling elements that we got on raw this Monday night and seeing Jay paranoid expecting an attack the entire time was extremely well done because that's the world he's been living in for the last three years. It was also kind of a funny segment
2: as well. Like where's the lie,
0: you know? So I
2: I liked a lot what they did here. Yeah. And Dom sometimes stumbles in these spots. Uh, He's not the best promo person, even no. though he gets booed for everything he says. And the fact that he didn't have an audience to play off of here uh, and, and he was able to be smarmy which works and, and everything kind of made sense there and it was also notable where like JD McDonough's trying to be in the Judgment Day and they're like no, but also they're trying to get somebody else to come in so it's, it's just adds another little dynamic little thing backstage that I, I really liked. This week especially it felt like they went back to a lot of backstage segments, something they maybe had kind of gotten away from that was a big part of the early Triple H era. So that kind of jumped out to me, too.
0: That's a great point. There were weeks and weeks where they stopped going backstage with the frequency they had been previously. It felt like half the show was backstage. And I love that. That's when you have a wrestling program, especially a three hour show like Raw, you got to differentiate just the visuals and seeing the Judgment Day Lounge exactly. in the backstage area, Adam Pierce's office. We saw Adam Pierce three times in this episode. There have been times where we see him zero times. No, he doesn't need to be on every show. I'm just saying he was involved in so many different things. Women were talking to him, tag team people, singles. Uh, you know, it was it was just, you're right. The way they mixed and matched all of that throughout the entire night, it was really visually striking. Just meaning that it allowed you to see different things than what we normally see where it's Entrance, you know, walk to the ring, match, promo in the ring, promo on the stage. It felt different. You're right. So speaking of Jay, prior to the interaction with Dom, he bumped into Akira Tozawa backstage. So Tozawa dipped in the other direction, just like he does with Rhea Ripley. Then Jay ran into Pierce, who informed him that SmackDown was actually going to get trade compensation, which might piss some people off and make people on Raw even more mad at Jay. Then Tommaso Ciampa walked up asking Pierce if they could finish a conversation that they presumably started earlier in the night. This really seemed to point to one of two outcomes. One, Cody Rhodes going to SmackDown. He's the one who brokered the deal. He did not appear on Raw, as I mentioned earlier, and he was barely in that Raw intro that I talked about. Two, maybe Johnny Gargano or Gargano and Ciampa, only because Ciampa was the next person that we saw talk to Pierce. That would seemingly be more difficult because you have Candice LeRae, Indy Hartwell, and Dexter Loomis are all on Raw, but it's not like it's tough to move them as well. It's You could pretty much do it. Also, we've talked about the fact that SmackDown is badly in need of women. There's not a deep enough roster. More than anything, though, Chris, if they do move Cody over to Friday nights, I would just be stunned by that. And Cody was in a dark match Monday, plus he's announced for Raw next week, so Maybe my spitballing is just totally incorrect. It's just that I could see Fox demanding him with Roman out for so long, despite Raw being the show that has more competition now going up against the NFL starting next week. It would almost be like WWE cannibalizing Raw even further to help SmackDown, and Jay alone is not going to fill the Cody gap, even if people love him, even if they moved LA Knight over or... They had LA Knight do both shows. Jay and LA Knight together do not bring in more than Cody does alone. So I'm extremely curious to see how this plays out. Yes, there are more top big time baby faces right now on Raw. You know, Kevin Owens, Sami Zayn, Cody, Jay, Chad Gable is on his way up there. There's probably other people I'm not even mentioning. Whereas on SmackDown right now, you have LA Knight and Rey Mysterio. And and that's pretty much it. So... And I guess AJ Styles could probably get there if you wanted him to be there as well. So I could see them moving Cody. But again, with Monday Night Football coming up, it just makes zero sense for me for them to do that.
2: I kind of like the idea of Cody just because he's the one who made the deal and maybe he didn't know at the time and he's kind of an accidental sacrifice or whatever. But I don't think it would make much sense. I've said this before. I think John Cena fills that gap of Roman Reigns being gone that you don't need Cody there for that. that. That's part of my guess in terms of him coming back, not only the India show, but being announced for all these future SmackDowns. The name I'm interested in in, in terms of a move would be Kevin Owens because that would put a little something between Sammy and Jay again, where Jay coming over is what, Made Kevin Owens go away from Sammy. Mm -hmm. Uh, They've just lost the tag titles. I think it's perfect. It's a perfectly fine time to split them up now and let them go do their own things. I think their tag team bit kind of ran its course, so I I think that would be a very clean way to move things over. Worst case, you can throw together another Kevin Owens Roman Reigns match if you want, and those things Mm -hmm. always deliver. Um, So that's going to be my guess as to who it is. I don't think Ciampa or D.L.Y. would make any sense. It's it's going to be somebody who feels pretty big, but it's not like Cody Rhodes level. And I think that would be Kevin Owens.
0: You're right that Owens would fit that role. My problem is why are you moving Owens away from Sammy? They are red hot together. They're not breaking up. You're not turning Owens heel. It's like, yeah, Sammy can work with Jay. Okay, sure. But why would you, like, I don't see why, and I don't know why they would want to do that. I don't think they do want to do that, Sammy and KO. They will probably want to work together Not that they definitely get what they want, but it seems like they have enough pull where they could stay on the same show if they want. So that's the reason. That's one of the reasons I'm kind of surprised about that.
2: Yeah, I I don't know. I Uh, would be surprised about that. Sorry, it's got to be somebody, and it's got to be somebody of some significance. You think with the way they're with the way they're hyping up this story here, like it's going to be somebody notable. And as you kind of look across the roster, my only other thought was um, maybe Gunther. But then you'd have to flip the U.S. title back over to Raw, and then it's the trade is still uneven. So I don't know.
0: Yeah, it's uh, one of those things. It's going to be interesting to see what they do. That's the key to the entire thing. Uh, one other item before we move on, uh, Eldred Ryan at Acme Tunes asked me, in K-Fabe Silver King, why is Dominic allowed to keep the North American championship, but Solo Sokoa was forced to relinquish the title? So the kayfabe answer is Shawn Michaels ordered Sokoa to vacate the title because he was not signed to compete in the title match that he won. They explained it on NXT when Sokoa vacated it. If you need another kayfabe explanation, it's that Reigns wanted Sokoa's entire focus and attention on him and the bloodline, whereas the goal with Dominic is to actually hold the title. He makes frequent appearances in NXT to defend it. So I hope that answered the question. To the rest of you, I know there were a ton of you who sent in DMs and tweets with questions and thoughts. We had so much to talk about on today's show. It was just tough to kind of add it, but I'm going to go through them. I'm combing through them next Tuesday on the WWE episode. If they still uh, matter to the conversation, I will inject as many of them as I possibly can. But with that said, it is time to move out of the main event into the segment. You know it, you love it. It is the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I'm sorry, Miss Rosie Perez. I call a spade a spade. It just is what it is. But you can't give credit to anything, do says. Same dude to give you ice and you own some. Johnny. it's time to wake up the dead. You sound a little naive in the articles that I read. All right, let's kick off with the Intercontinental Championship. Gunther defending against Chad Gable. Now, this was built up pretty well during Raw. They had multiple video packages that showcased the most legendary Intercontinental champions. The only thing I felt was missing from these was like a graphic showing how many days each of them held the title. In other words, WWE platformed the title as extremely important, but they didn't showcase the length of Gunther's reign while doing so. Did you feel the same way?
2: It felt like they were emphasizing it's a big deal that Gunther is the champion. At the Intercontinental title is a big deal and less so this unprecedented run he's gone on. I thought WWE did an OK job hyping this up. I'm very happy they made it the main event like we had asked for. Mm-hmm. But I wanted this to like lead off the show with something and then give me a lot of stuff throughout the show, especially since we didn't get Cody and. Becky and stuff like that. Right. I just felt like it would have been one of those just like honky talk about honky talk man's record. And then Gunther beating it and, and what it means. Instead, it was just like, look at all these great people who have won the intercontinental championship, which we've gotten many times before.
0: Right. Like it should have been, you open raw, you do the payback stuff. And then the next thing you do is history is on the line tonight on Monday night. Yep. Raw. Gunther is going for the longest intercontinental championship reign of all time. And then you show the package. And again, you can show the same package, but with the days. And maybe you do, because the th- they did like three or four different packages. Maybe you do them in reverse order. Like you do the top 20 longest reigns and you have the days. And then at the last package is the five longest. You know, as of right now, you show Gunther at number two and then you show Honky Tonk at number one. And then you have Michael Cole say, that's what's on the line tonight for Gunther. Like I, it just... I don't understand why they didn't do more regarding that. It didn't take away, it didn't make it worse by any means, but they could have platformed it even more than they did. And that was frustrating to me. So yeah,
2: yeah it yeah, it did it didn't it didn't make the match feel any less important. It just didn't make it feel more <laughs> Exactly. And yeah. it, it felt like that was the that was the real goal.
0: Exactly. So Gunther cut a promo saying Gable will not stand in the way of his legacy, and that Gunther, not Gable, is the one who belongs in history books. Gable told Gunther later. He's already in the history books as an Olympian and a valedictorian. I don't think they put valedictorians in history books, but Olympians, sure. Uh, He promised to add to his legacy and prove to fans and his family who were in attendance that he's more than just a tag team specialist. Gable also wore, let's just be candid, an absolutely awful jacket that spelled out Gable as giving aggressive beatings like an expert. Uh, Anyway, this was indeed the main event of the show. Uh, Gunther dominated early, just like usual. He chopped the literal soul out of Gable for two segments. Gunther caught Gable with a powerbomb as he slid into the ring. Then he chopped Gable off the top rope, only for Gable to bounce back with a superplex and a flying headbutt for a false finish. He immediately moved into an ankle lock that got broken. Gunther countered Chaos Theory, and Gable countered a powerbomb with a belly to back suplex. Then Gable hit Chaos Theory for a 2.9 false finish. Gunther sold it incredibly and the crowd was insane. They were hanging on everything. Gunther stopped the moonsault with his foot, so Gable grabbed it, rolled twice into an ankle lock, and then fully cinched it in, sitting down on his leg on the canvas. Gunther pulled uh, Gable down into a rear naked choke, but Gable rolled into the trap-pinning combination. Gunther then hit a full-release German suplex with Gable landing on his head. Another angle shows that he blocked it, but it looked gnarly. And then immediately after that, followed with a powerbomb, And an absolutely insane lariat looked like he decapitated him. And that was the finisher to pin Gable in 16 minutes. And WWE immediately cut to Gable's daughter, who, as they moved the camera to her, completely broke into tears. That absolutely crushed me emotionally, seeing this little girl burst into tears live on television. My biggest issue here, Chris, is that WWE made the decision not to put this on payback and to build it up for two weeks. Not just that, but to promote it for 150 minutes on Monday night. Yet they gave these guys 16 minutes with two commercial breaks at the end of the show. We basically saw nine minutes of the match without picture-in-picture. For a normal main event, that is totally fine. For a match of this magnitude, with a record title reign on the line. I found that to be unacceptable. There was so little time that Gunther barely got to celebrate and Gable didn't even like get a standing ovation perhaps that we could have seen live on air. Both should have happened after that match was over. But don't get me wrong, okay? What we got was great. The crowd was on fire. Gable came out looking incredible. It was the closest to Kurt Angle that he has ever been. It was so awesome seeing this entire arena on their feet for him. This is the type of push he has always deserved and we have always wanted for him. He was the perfect opponent to give Gunther an underdog scare in the last days before he breaks the record. And the crowd shot of Gable's daughter, if you did not well up a little bit, you're lying to yourself or you have no soul. That was such great camera work and such great storytelling devices, Gunther got that awesome 80s-style fuck-them-kids energy out of it. We've been missing that in wrestling. Now, Gable does not just have a professional reason, but a personal reason to go after Gunther as well. But again, despite all those positives I just mentioned, it was two and a half minutes longer than their first match, and it almost felt like a sneak peek of what they could really do together. I would love it if they go to a rubber match at Fastlane or somewhere else and they get 25 minutes or they get a 30-minute Ironman match with a title change. That would make this a lot more palatable in hindsight. It's just for me that, Chris, on a Raw like this, there was no reason for this to not have gotten more time. I went 4.25 stars, A, and obviously this is good, it just felt like it fell a little short of what is truly possible with both of them in the ring together.
2: Match was terrific. And I love the finish. I always love Gunther's like mega pins where he just puts his entire body on somebody. Like, that's how, like in kayfabe, that's how you should pin guys. It feels like a big deal. It feels like he's putting in a lot of effort. He's so good at those little things. As for why this match was not longer, If this was like an AEW spot, they would get the last 30 minutes for sure. AEW does a lot of these where you really give a spotlight to a big match on a TV show, and it really emphasizes the importance of it. Really disappointed we didn't get that here. My thought is perhaps we do get it, and that's where Gable wins the title, in a 30-minute banger, Mm -hmm. you know, or a real cap to all of this they they released a uh, short little interview with gable afterward like undoing his boots and stuff and he said he he's not done he's gonna get that title you know he saw what happened in front of his family like so i i, I don't it's possible this isn't done and it's possible they wanted to give you the, the the big banger for i i guess i guess technically the rubber match between these two and that's where Gable wins. Mm-hmm. So I hope that's the case. Um, Gable has gotten incredibly over here. The family thing, like the family moment, doesn't feel like the end of a story. You don't introduce the family and make them cry and right. then it's over. Right. You know? Exactly. Like it feels like that's the next building block. Major props to camera crew for getting that and for Gable's family for reacting the way they did. I don't know if. They told the kid to cry or or, or if she was a genuine reaction. I don't know. I don't care. I loved it. It's the exact type of heat we need to get. And it's not beyond the mat. Mick Foley's kids are crying because his dad's getting hit in the head with a chair 50 times. Right. He's upset that the the kids upset that his dad lost. And Gunther feels like the big 80s villain because of that. Gunther got a lot more heat here because of this. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of my one criticism of Groother's run is that he doesn't feel like a mega heel he just feels like a really good wrestler so you throw this in there I think this isn't the end of it and I think we do get our big match but yes it was disappointing not to get it here Mm -hmm. when it's the one you built up to for a long time
0: regarding the kids they definitely did not tell I don't know how old she is but I mean six seven they did not tell a girl to cry on cue so I'm sure what happened is they asked Gable, or Gable suggested, or whatever the case, hey, we want to put the camera on your family during the match, but also in the finish, and if she cries, she cries, right? Um, don't forget, he he picked up his son and brought him into the ring or around the ring a couple of weeks ago on TV. So clearly it's okay with Gable, and that's all that mm-hmm. really matters. I wanted to also note that Gable cut a promo on social media after Raw. And quickly before I play this, I want to say... This is the third one of these, or the second of three of these that I will be mentioning on the show. And I say that to almost tell you, when Raw and SmackDown end, it is actually now worth checking out WWE's Twitter accounts because they are posting some great promos and follow-up deals. Here is what Gable said after Raw on a Monday night. One of those things where,
1: and uh, I think amateur wrestling taught me a lot about this dealing with like having these huge opportunities right and these big like character building and breakout moments at at your disposal like you got to make the most of them and then when something like tonight happens and it just slips through your fingers um it's happened to me before in amateur wrestling but i learned to like persevere like like kind of find my way through it and realize that like that's not the end and i promise you in this situation it's the same thing that's not the end Uh, for a number of reasons. One, because uh, I have a legacy to protect here and we can talk all the ha-ha stuff you want and thank you and shoosh. Yeah, all that's fun. And (laughs) it's a good time to do that to people and fun to play along with. But there's also times where when it's my kids sitting in the front freaking row and we got Gunther up there uh, talking to them and saying, is this your daddy? And chopping me in front of him and my daughter's crying her freaking eyes out. um, It kind of stops being fun at a certain point. Um, So that bothers me at a certain level. So you have my word. I swear to you, I swear to everybody and on myself and my career, that's not the end. I'm taking the championship, that intercontinental championship. I want him to keep it as long as it freaking takes for me to get a rematch because I'm coming back for it. And I swear to God, I'm winning that championship.
0: First of all, that felt super real. Number two, a little bit of Tim Tebow promise speech in there at the end. That's how it kind of came across to me. There was no reason, Chris, for Gable to guarantee a title win if that is not the plan going forward. I am really excited to see how it plays out. And after hearing that, I'm very confident we're getting a rubber match.
2: Yes, exactly. That, that's what I was saying. That's what I was mentioning. I do wonder the fact that he said, however long it takes. um, Right. Made me wonder if it's not happening right away, if we come back to it later. Um, But you don't, you know, WWE doesn't post that with Chad Gable guaranteeing he's winning the title. If he's definitely not winning the title. Right. So, Not
0: not just winning the title, winning it off Gunther. Like you specifically said, I want him to keep the title so that I can beat him for it. I also wanted to note, you mentioned they uploaded the full match to YouTube. Kind of. They uploaded 11 minutes and 30 seconds. The match went 1550. But you can see the vast majority of it in a less interrupted state, I guess is the best way to put it, on YouTube. Um, It's not heavily viewed right now, but it is their newest video, at least when we're taping this podcast. And look, it's going to be a few days before... It's official, but we would be remiss if we did not briefly discuss Gunther becoming the longest reigning intercontinental champion of all time. Just because WWE isn't going to focus on it that much doesn't mean we shouldn't. (laughs) Now, his reign started under Vince McMahon, no doubt. Let's not forget that. But the way Triple H has presented him does Gunther justice as one of the greatest wrestlers in the entire world. He's a main eventer as a mid-card champion, and it's obvious that he's going to be a future wrestler. Multi time heel world champion in WWE. Can you imagine big bad European Gunther against American nightmare Cody Rhodes for a world title? That's going to happen at some point in the next two or three years. And that shit is going to slap when it actually happens. There was a time where many thought he would never go to WWE. And even Gunther, as Walter, said he would never go to the main roster. And here we are. A few years after that, with him elevating this title, setting the all-time record, and standing as one of the top wrestlers in the entire industry, it's absolutely incredible stuff, and he totally deserves his flowers.
2: Yep, completely agree. He's another one of those guys where you say he's one of the best wrestlers in the world, even if you wouldn't say he has the best work rate, you know? Like, his matches are a fight, and it feels like that. And it's been very, very cool to to see it get to this point. I'm still on the fence about him breaking the record at this point, because I feel like there's still so much you can kind of get from him. But the most memorable part of Honky Tonk's reign is him losing it. And so we've still got a lot to go here with that. And it's very possible that that happens. And ultimately, it ends up being a bigger deal for Chad Gable that he dethroned the longest reign just like it was for Ultimate Warrior when he dethroned Mm -hmm. Hockey Talk Man. So major props to Gunther for everything. His matches with off and NXT were some of the best matches I've ever seen. And he continues to do a a great job, and it continues this. Triple H is absolutely leaving his mark on WWE history in a very short amount of time. Absolutely. We have a 1,000-day reign for Roman Reigns, which I know didn't start under him, but he kept it going. It's It's kept going under him. We have the longest reigning Intercontinental Champion of all time. I think they said Bianca was the longest reigning women's champ of all time. Is that right? I believe
0: it's raw women's champion with that version of the title. And it's not of all time. It's okay. modern. It's a modern era. I believe is what it is.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. Fabulous Moolah had like a 20 year reign. One <laughs> yeah, of those type exactly. of things. And then also, and then also the longest uh, tag team reign with the Usos, right. which again, didn't start under him, but it continued like almost every major championship has a significant milestone now, which means like, they will mean something when they're lost. And also, I hope we start to get shorter rains after this now. We don't need to go on 1,000-day reigns every single time.
0: By the way, uh, if what I'm hearing is true, poor Walter. It's the most action I've had all year. Uh, Shinsuke Nakamura got another translated promo package. He was proud of having broken Seth Rollins and being the one who stood tall after the post-match attack at Payback, but he admitted That he underestimated Rollins' grip on the World Heavyweight Championship. Shinsuke promised that he would win the title and end it. Rollins then hobbled backstage with Pierce stopping him, saying medical ordered him not to even be at Raw. Seth insisted multiple times that he was fine. Ricochet was already with Pierce, asking for some type of opportunity, so he dapped up Rollins for respect, saying he didn't have to carry the show himself. Rollins later in the ring admitted that Nakamura nearly took him out, but he put himself over for prevailing, even though he left the building in a wheelchair. Nakamura then entered to some light piped in booze, which was really weird because fans were singing his music at the same time. He refused to enter the ring. So Rollins offered a rematch on Raw. Shinsuke answered in Japanese, then said no a bunch. So Seth attacked him on stage. What Nakamura said, I saw a translation, was he didn't really feel like it and he would take Rollins's future from him on his own time. Anyway, they got separated from brawling with Ricochet helping but not until after Shinsuke got knees into Seth's back. Afterward, Rollins literally got into a screaming match with Pierce in gorilla position. Pierce told him that Rollins is running at a pace no one else has, and he's just trying to protect him from himself. Rollins basically replied, that doesn't work for me, brother. Uh, Don't want to set any of you up for disappointment, okay? But the combination of these segments and the way Rollins was acting, both physically and emotionally it made it seem like they may actually be building a title change at Fastlane. I remain thrilled with the way Nakamura is being presented as this awesome anime villain character. It feels completely fresh, and he has been so legitimized. Plus, Rollins is finally being put on his heels as a champion. He's not the dominant party. He doesn't get to just sit there and laugh. He's actually becoming a more serious character again. And then you had his blow up with Pierce, even for a short segment. Those guys were awesome in that moment. This was clearly good.
2: Yes, this was, was really good. Nakamura continues to be great. They did release. I don't know if they put on the show or just on online, but they did have a Nakamura promo where he says that same thing. I will fight Seth Rollins uh, on my own Mm -hmm. time, basically. So uh, obviously this this is an ending. I like that they built off of what happened in payback, continue to Uh, do that. I don't know about a title change, but I don't know. Anything seems possible. I'm intrigued. I really, really like this is the most fun, interesting Nakamura has been. I'm glad this is still going because we weren't sure after payback. We thought it should, but weren't sure if it would. Now now it clearly is.
0: So there was a match that followed Ricochet against Nakamura. This came on the heels of the pull-apart brawl. Priest watched backstage, Ricochet hit a standing shooting star press and recoil, plus a somersault off the ring apron. Nakamura ran Rick's spine into the post and barricade, then he used a chair twice on him for disqualification. He wrapped the chair around Ricochet's neck, so Rollins ran in to prevent Kinshasa. Security tried to stop him, so he hit a tope con hero onto Nakamura until getting driven spine first into the steel steps and getting beaten until Ricochet chased Shinsuke away. Ripley then told Priest it was not the right time to cash him. Wade Barrett on commentary provided a really important clarification that Shinsuke had no interest in competing, so the DQ was meaningless to him. I found that to be a missed opportunity to just get Nakamura a win over someone who could take an L without issue, but they could possibly rematch next week. The wrestling was strong, the storytelling elements were even better, especially with Rollins selling the spine more than he pretty much did in the prior parts of the show. And as you mentioned, they closed the loop with the Nakamura social media promo explaining, I really didn't want to wrestle and I want to do the title match on my own time. It's about me, not about you. So I thought this was good.
2: Yeah, that, that, that was good. You kind of said it all there. It, it, Nakamura doesn't need to beat Ricochet. Like, like we said, his match with Seth elevated him in a way a win over Ricochet wouldn't. You know, like he feels like a big deal now. So, like, you can do this type of thing. It emphasizes the want to do it on my own time type of stuff. So, yeah, that was good.
0: We'll move to The Miz, who opened hour three of Raw saying he did not lose at payback. Then he introduced the man who could make it right by being transparent, John Cena. The music hit, fans popped huge, but obviously there was no Cena because they'd promote him if he was going to be there. Meanwhile, Stu, the cameraman, incredibly did the entire John Cena entrance exactly as it would have been, but with no one there. Barrett made a joke about the cameraman not being able to see him, and Miz then did an entire Miz TV segment talking to an empty chair. The explanation was that, unlike the fans, Miz has been able to not only see John Cena, but see through him for 18 years. The fans drowned Miz out with yeah, so he told them actually to say yes instead. Then he realized... That doesn't work either because of Daniel Bryan, which was very funny. Miz then got Invisible Cena to agree that he conspired with LA Knight. Then he slapped him across the face. Invisible Cena pushed back and fans start chanting, holy shit. So he did a full attack with a skull crushing finale again on nothing as fans booed. Miz then challenged Knight to a rematch without a special guest referee saying he would burn down his run. Pun Chris fully intended here. This was awesome. I was so fully and completely sports entertained. I cannot believe it took WWE this long to make this joke and they absolutely (laughs) nailed it. The night feud and Cena's return has completely rejuvenated Miz. He is literally at his best right now. To get those kinds of reactions that he did without Knight or Cena there, this was so damn good you rub me just
2: right every week miz is a hall of famer and this is why this was a segment that needs to go in the annals of history of like one of those classics you always look back at like Mm -hmm. CX doing the nation or stuff like that. New this Day, Uso's amazing. rap battle. And it, One of those right up there. Top tier. Exactly. Yep. Like, I, like I was, like I was kind of disappointed. Maybe it was because of football that this didn't get more like attention and play. Cause this could, this, you could meme this thing to death. It was amazing. The Miz is so freaking talented. You would not have known if you were just listening that there was nobody in the ring with him. <laughs> he played that incredibly. It felt like he was talking to somebody. And he the Miz, got a holy shit chant during this. <laughs> yeah, for 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 a for a standoff with nobody like that's how talented this dude is. And the first thing that came to my head was actually Clint Eastwood in the 2012 RNC when he was supposed to be talking to Obama. That <laughs> thing. Like, but this that's what I thought to back with this. But this was amazing. I, I, by the way, another nice quip from Wade Barrett at the end when the segment's over, Wade Barrett goes, I think we need medical attention. Cena hasn't moved. <laughs> <laughs> it was so good. I've I rewatched this thing on YouTube multiple times. This was incredible. The Miz is incredible. You're right. Cena and LA Knight, all of this coming back together, has brought Miz back to the top of his game again. Like, it, it, this is why you can always put him in somewhere. And he will deliver. I'm glad that the LA night Miz stuff is going to keep going forward. That's what we wanted to, because these guys have been so good together. I'm really looking forward to SmackDown now. And man, I, this is as good as you could possibly grade on this thing, like hall of fame level segment here from the Miz. My God. I like it. I like it a lot.
0: We'll move over to Shotzi against Bailey. A good amount of Shotzi's hair grew back, and she spiked it kind of like the spiny blue shell in Mario Kart. That's what it reminded me of. Uh, Shotzi hit a cannonball off the ring apron, a topé suicida, and then a cannonball in the corner. Io Sky distracted during a high risk, and Bailey called to use her title. So Charlotte Flair storms down, and with Dakota Kai distracting the referee, Flair punched Bailey, and Shotzi hit a fisherman style DDT to get the win in nine minutes. This worked for me until Charlotte showed up. Heaven forbid there be a decent women's storyline on SmackDown without her involved. I would have almost rathered Shotzi lose to like heal distractions and then give her a rematch with Bailey, as opposed to giving her a flare-aided win like this, especially if the storyline gets dropped now that she's won after she teams with Charlotte next week. That would be immensely disappointing to see it disappear when they spent so much time building it up. I get protecting Bailey to a degree, but more women like Shotzi need to get over on their own. And it sure seemed clear to me that Charlotte is going right back after EO and the women's title. And man, let's just hope I'm wrong about that and they don't cycle the damn strap back to her. WWE has been teasing us with EO and Asuka for months. And I just have this really bad feeling in the pit of my stomach that like Charlotte taps out EO at Fastlane. And we go right back into our hell with Flair as the women's champion. I truly hope I'm wrong and I truly hope I'm being pessimistic, but clearly Bailey agrees with me because she cut a social media promo that will remain a drop on this podcast probably as long as Charlotte exists in WWE.
1: You know, Charlotte sees gold and she has to follow it. She she's like, Where's the championship? Oh, it's out there. Let me go out there. Even though she has nothing to do with us, we don't want Charlotte around.
0: So Bailey said it all there. Look, it was still a good segment. I'm not saying it was bad just because Charlotte was out there, but get her away from the title, please.
2: I think we get Charlotte EO because EO needs somebody to feud with, but I think EO wins. I don't think they're going to put it back on Charlotte for that. Your mouth to Charlotte God's Jumping ears. in this jumping in on this part too, it feels like they don't think Shotzi enough on her own kind of will connect enough so you want to have charlotte kind of elevate her next to her which i kind of get Shotzi hasn't really clicked yet on the main roster and i'm i was annoyed when charlotte came out but i kind of got it um so of course i'm worried charlotte's gonna win the belt but io hasn't has she even defended it since she won it she has one think.
0: defense against Zelina so, vega two weeks ago
2: that's right And so I don't think, I really don't think Triple H is going to put the belt on her just to take it away from her in her first real major match. I'm cautiously optimistic, but I would understand people who are not.
0: It's just you really don't need Charlotte with her. like Zelina Vega's over like Rover and already supported Shotzi previously. Also, she has beef with damage control and EO. So why not have her make the save? Then you team them up. The babyfaces win the tag team match and then Shotzi gets, a, not she's already she's already beat Bailey, and now she gets a shot against EO for the title at Fastlane. That's a fresh match. It's so much better than rubbing Charlotte in here and if you want Charlotte on TV, put her in a feud with someone else. <laughs> Figure out something else for her to do. That, that's pretty much what I'm trying to get at here. Uh, we'll move on. Raquel Rodriguez met with Pierce making sure what he promised would come to fruition. We didn't know what that was at the time. Pierce said he was still working on it. Uh, Chelsea Green then stormed in saying, some people are so rude. So Pierce hysterically replied, don't I know it? Pierce announced that Piper Niven is not medically cleared and Green brought up the women's tag team titles being cursed. He suggested it's her, not the titles that are cursed. Green then ripped Rodriguez for losing at Payback and Raquel appeared behind her, of course, and Pierce set a one-on-one match. This was one of those like smile and shake your head moments where Niven not being cleared, like, I just, I was like, it has to be a rib. Like, like, like there's no way she can actually be hurt or something bad can happen. Obviously, the women's tag team titles are cursed. Just kidding, not really. So um,
2: obviously the tag team titles are cursed. I'm just kidding, but like not really.
0: Apparently Piper is just sick and will be back on TV soon, which is obviously the best case scenario. Regardless of that, this was a really well-executed comedy segment. Uh, to build a quick match on Raw, I thought.
2: Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I'm really hoping it's not more for Piper Niven. I hadn't seen anything about that, so I was kind of confused by that as well. I, like I said, I love Piper Niven, and I really like the potential of this team, so uh, we'll see.
0: So we had Rodriguez green. Chelsea got a hope spot. Raquel Strait decapitated her with a lariat. It actually drew ooze from the crowd. Then she won with a Tejana bomb in a squash match. After the bell Rodriguez announced that Pierce granted her a rematch against Ripley next week on Raw and Dominic was barred from ringside. Now I know that Chelsea's gimmick allows her to lose like this and not be hurt by it. But she is a champion and I just don't see why they couldn't have given her an actual match even if Raquel dominated the entire time. Everything worked here primarily the backstage segment. So overall it gets a good. The crowd was rather meh for the title rematch announcement. Because, again, we mentioned this on Payback, the uh, instant analysis. Raquel needs to develop a character. And right now, she just doesn't have one.
2: Correct. There's nothing to connect with her on. The only thing she's really ever had is that she was friends with Liv. This is what we said after the instant analysis. All right. All right, cool. That's uh, about it.
0: you your grade overall?
2: Oh, uh, oh uh, for, for the Raquel Chelsea segment, I give that a bad. I okay. didn't care for it for all the reasons you said. Chelsea, like, I, yeah, it's her character, but she's not only is she a champion, she's holding both belts, you know, and so this was just kind of another, eh. Okay.
0: Right. Our first disagreement of the day. Uh, let's move to Drew McIntyre and Matt Riddle against the Viking Raiders in a Tornado tag team match.
1: Four big men slapping meat equals excitement.
0: Riddle did a Dudley boys callback with get the tables, but Drew pushed him back telling him, dude, you get the table, which I thought was really funny. Uh, The faces hit a double superplex and a Death Valley driver on Ivar. He then splashed Drew off the announce table onto the floor. Riddle got distracted on the ropes, so Kofi Kingston ran down to save him from Ragnarok into a table, but he accidentally nailed Riddle with trouble in paradise. Then the Raiders lawn darted Kofi into Drew and hit Riddle with Ragnarok into the table to get the win. McIntyre later sought out Kingston backstage while having problems with Jay as well as Cody for bringing Jay to Raw, then Kofi came up, Riddle said it was cool, McIntyre thought it was purposeful, and said he was keeping his eye on everyone and everything. So not only did this match bang, but the booking was totally on point. The Raiders continue to rack up wins, their dominance is growing, and the faces continue to have both these internal and these external struggles. It would make a bit more sense to do this if there were babyface tag team champions, because then the Raiders would be really strong number one contenders. But it nevertheless works for the angle that they're doing with four prominent faces, not in singles feuds. And beyond that, we continue to get all of these teases of McIntyre being frustrated and more frustrated with one baby face after another. So clearly he's going to turn heel. And given the stuff with Cody, how he's seeking out Cody, maybe he actually turns heel against Rhodes. And that is a huge feud for him coming up soon. But all in all, both the match and the backstage segment, this was good
2: yeah this was good it's It's very perfectly fine, like honestly like low card type of stuff, and it's been entertaining. It's been building a little bit each and each and each week. The Viking Raiders being a part of this and getting the wins, they're like very much the third wheel in all of this. Mm-hmm. I don't which is fine, but like I don't really take them seriously they've just they've been just kind of weird in this whole current gimmick that they're doing. Uh, it the story really is New Day and McIntyre and Riddle. So that part's entertaining and the Viking Raiders are just kind of there to get the win, I guess, which is fine. Again, it's low card type stuff. And for what that is, that was good.
0: I would just love it if they toned down the corniness of the gimmick a little bit. Like Triple H is the Skulls guy, you or, know, from NXT, yeah, the black yeah. and gold skull, you know, heavy metal dude. I'd love if the Viking Raiders took on like a heavy metal type of aesthetic rather than just this Viking deal with Valhalla and the gods. And I know you need variety. And I know that speaks to a different audience. Maybe it's a good heel team for kids and stuff, but you know, it's just a little too corny for me.
2: Exactly. Like it, it feels too much like they believe it when it would almost be better if like they either leaned into the corniness or or, or something else It's like they're playing it too straight. Right. It's like weird.
0: Alpha Academy knows they're corny. Uh, you know what I mean? So they're corny and they appeal to kids and all that. You heard Gable say it, but they know what they're doing. Heavy machinery back in the day knew what they were doing. The Viking Raiders, it seems like they're taking it seriously, but being corny. And it's it's just very odd. It's like they're actually cosplaying and think it's real. That That's the way it comes off. Uh, let's yeah. move back to SmackDown. Bobby Lashley hit the ring to a great ovation and a chant. He said he linked up with the Street Profits because real recognized real. The Profits also got a huge pop when they came out. They put over their relationship with Lashley and thanked him. Lashley said they're putting everyone in WWE on notice because they want power control and championship gold. As they exited, Sami Zayn and Kevin Owens entered. They did a quick stare down, but the trio let them through to the ring. Obviously, this happened before Sami and KO lost the titles. Now, my issue with this segment is that nothing was accomplished. Yes, it was the first time they were in the ring together speaking, but we learned nothing that we didn't know before. I expected at least at the very end of the promo, for Lashley to drop the group's name. And that's why we are the suit profits, or or that's why we are this. (laughs) But he didn't even do that.
2: I was waiting, yeah.
0: How are we a month into this group with no name? Like, please don't get it twisted. These guys are great. Huge fan of Bobby Lashley. Huge fan of the Street Profits. Glad that they're a trio. But I gotta give this segment a bad, because it didn't accomplish anything. I will change my mind if next week they start feuding with someone big and they come up with a name and there's a whole thing. But this, to me, it seemed like it was a cursory glance at them as a trio. And the same face-to-face they did with KO and Sammy, which ended up not mattering because they lost the titles, that could have happened backstage. If you are in the ring speaking, you need to be conveying something. And they did not do it here. So this isn't Raw. I told you Raw was basically perfect, but this was a bad for me on SmackDown.
2: Yeah, it's a bad, not because of what they did was bad. It's just because they didn't give you anything that was good. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I was waiting for the name. Like you said, at the end, I thought they were going to drop us a name. And no, all right. There's just a rare kind of waste of time segment, which we don't really get in WWE much anymore.
0: Two other notes. One, I thought it was interesting that they've returned as heels only to immediately get put back to baby faces because the Prophets and Lashley, are just way too over. Every time they appear on screen, they get cheered no matter what they do. It was definitely not the plan, but it's also great to see that fans like them so much. And we were talking about a dearth of baby faces on SmackDown. You want to talk about a baby face main eventer? Bobby Lashley is a baby face main eventer. He still hasn't gotten a match with Roman Reigns. You could do that at the Royal Rumble. You could do it at Survivor Series. You could do it at Crown Jewel. So there's another option right there if they keep them face. Number two it really does feel like the tag team titles need to be split because there are now so many teams across Raw and SmackDown. The Profits coming back is another huge example of that on the blue brand.
2: Yes. To to that to that point about Bobby Lashley, I like I thought we might get Bobby Lashley, Roman at SummerSlam like a while ago, so Right. Yeah, there there's a lot you can do, but Roman isn't around and doesn't seem like he's going to be around for a bit, so that's the other issue with Lashley and the Street Profits is what what is who is there for them to feud with? There's mm-hmm. like not a ton going on. LA Knight is kind of the face of Smackdown right now. So we gotta see who gets traded over, perhaps again. So we'll see.
0: Yeah, I mean, between LA Knight, Ray Mysterio, AJ Styles, and Lashley, you have four strong faces, but there's nothing for them to feud over, and the US champion is Ray, a babyface. So they're not even feuding for the US title. So I think that's one of the reasons why SmackDown is struggling creatively compared to Raw right now. It's just the way the roster is formatted doesn't really fit. And it kind of makes me think they actually need to bring a heel over from Raw instead of a face. But maybe we'll talk more about that next week and we'll see if they give us any further clue into who might get traded uh, this coming Friday on SmackDown or this coming Monday on Raw. We'll wrap up this segment with Zoe Stark against Shayna Baszler. Stark backstage said Trish Stratus proved that she's the greatest of all time, but no one gets away with pushing her. Baszler stepped in, calling Stratus dead weight, just like Ronda Rousey was, but Zoe took that as a shot and she challenged her for a match. There was a missed Z360, so Zoe splashed Shayna outside off the ring apron. She came back in trying her seated springboard corkscrew, but got caught in Karafuna clutch. Stark made it to her feet twice, but Baszler kept it locked in for the knockout victory in eight minutes. Shayna was so impressed with Zoe that she actually walked over to her after the bell, dapped her up, and each of them said, that the other one fought better than Rousey and Stratus, respectively. Now, some are gonna be annoyed that Zoe was not allowed to capitalize on the payback moment, but I think there's something to be said for that. Baszler getting a significant needed win and then putting Stark over was probably more impactful than Zoe beating someone like Katana Chance or something like that. The match was also booked well. Zoe sold the hell out of Karafuta Clutch, and she came across like a big-time babyface while doing it, And most important, the crowd cared about this. And there's so many mid-card and low-card women's matches that the crowd just doesn't care about. They cared about this, and they cared about Raquel Rodriguez and Chelsea Green, mostly because they hate Chelsea. But this, I thought, reached the minimum time desired, and it was good booking, so that's the grade.
2: Yeah, I thought it was a real solid good. You know, Shayna gets the big win over Ronda, and you're thinking this is supposed to be the big push forward for her, and we just, we didn't get it cut a promo and then disappeared for a while. So glad to have her come back and get a win of note because Zoe Stark has been built up to be a notable competitor. So uh, it was good. I, I really love the finish. I loved Zoe Stark fighting to get out of it multiple times, almost getting out, but not getting out. Like that is the perfect way to do a submission finish to me. You know, as opposed to just holding it, holding it, holding it, and you're done. Like we didn't, we didn't get into it, but... Chad Gable, Günther was the same thing. How long he had the ankle lock, how close it was to getting broken a couple times, but keeping it on and doing different things. Like, there's so, there's just like little things you can do with submissions to really make them feel like a big deal. And they did that here with the finish of this match. So, yeah, I really liked this. I thought it was a good.
0: All right. Well, that wraps up the good, the bad, and the ugly across SmackDown and Raw this week. It also means we have completed four of our five segments on today's show. So, let's go to the last segment, which just so happens to be called The Last Word. And for it like fresh cut now, I want to be clear. We have gotten a number of last word submissions over the last couple of weeks, and we appreciate all of them. There's one in particular that we've delayed for three weeks because other things keep coming in that necessitate us covering them first, and that happened again this week, because Marcus Russell emailed us a very pertinent question for today. He asks, with Gunther close to breaking the Intercontinental Championship record, who are your guys' top five Intercontinental Champions? Now, he gave me his list. I will read his list after we give ours. Chris, who are your top five Intercontinental Champions? Why don't you go from five to one?
2: Okay, I have five, but I didn't have them in an Oh, that's order fine. Okay, just
0: was, give me your five then. That's fine.
2: Difficult. Yeah, narrowing, narrowing this down was incredibly difficult. Narrowing it down to five. There's a lot of like, yeah. seven, eight, nine guys who could be in this group. I did, None of them really jumped out to me because it's the intercontinental belts is like the clear best. But but these were the five I absolutely think are, are, are there. Nation of Domination Rock. That was the Rock's big rise. The feud with Stone Cold throwing the IC title off the bridge. Mm, yeah. Uh, Big fan of that that whole rock era. Macho Man Randy Savage, uh, the steamboat match at WrestleMania three, um, a, a guy who really elevated that title. It felt like a big deal mm-hmm. when he had that title. Dashing slash masked Cody Rhodes. Interesting. When he brought back the white Intercontinental title, I think that's that was a really really good era of Cody Rhodes. really creative thing it it brought the intercontinental title back to something else and his history just it felt like a big deal now this is where it gets really really tough to narrow down i've got like six or seven guys that could narrow down for these final two spots i'm gonna go with razor ramon obviously the intercontinental title was the highest he ever got the match with Shawn michaels the ladder match like a lot of classic intercontinental championship moments. Razor Ramon and then the last one uh, it's it's tough if you go over like longevity or like a single run I'm gonna go honky-tonk man Mm. who has who had the longest reign of all time who had a very uh, who who fought with many big-time people over that belt and ultimately again lost it to ultimate warrior which sent the Ultimate Warrior up on, on a big trajectory as well. When like He's he's a weird, funny character, but I, I associate him with the Intercontinental Championship a lot. Now, there are a couple of guys who have had long reigns I kept out, but those are the five I'm going to go with in terms of top five Intercontinental Champions. What are yours?
0: Okay, so I'm thrilled because we are entering another one of these questions where our lists are, I'm not, not saying 100% different, but drastically different. And that gives me potentially... Good. Another Good. opportunity to get a win over you, like I did. I think it was with the entrance themes. I got a huge W. Um, so let me go ahead and do that again. Let me just completely bury you here. Uh, I did them in order, but I'm gonna oh, take wow. them. I'm gonna take them out of order because they're so. Some of them are so close to each other that if that's what we're doing, then we'll keep it consistent. But these are my five: uh, Shawn Michaels and Razor Ramon. Uh, they're interchangeable in spots, very close to one another. Razor Ramon, I will make it clear, is my favorite intercontinental champion of all time. Just who was my favorite to watch? Razor Ramon. I loved the IC title with the black strap, the classic title, but with the black strap. It's my favorite incarnation of it. But beyond that, I loved him as champion. Obviously, the ladder matches with Shawn Michaels and other things he did. Fantastic. HBK, legendary runs with the intercontinental championship. Uh, One of the best wrestlers, one of my favorite wrestlers, a no-brainer in this spot. Also deserving here is Chris Jericho, who I forget the number of reigns Mm -hmm. he had, but it's like seven or nine or something like that. He, when I I think of, when I think of Chris in WWE, yes, I do think of him as undisputed champion, but secondarily, I think of him as a fantastic intercontinental champion. He was made for the belt and vice versa in WWE. I just hated the version that he carried around the actual belt itself, but he was great On this list, Gunther, who is setting the record for longest reign of all time and probably has the best set of matches as Intercontinental Champion in WWE history, at least two five-star matches, not to mention a number of four, four and a half, four point, like you could just go through them, but beyond the work rate, he has completely elevated this title back to where it was when the likes of Macho Man Randy Savage held it or Shawn Michaels held it, and guys like this. I mean, this title is more important than it has been in a long, long time. So, you know, it's one thing if you don't have Jericho on your list, I really am surprised you overlooked Gunther himself. I will I will say that. Um, and the fifth guy on my list, Randy Savage, who, again, you want to talk about elevating the title, making it feel like it was the most important thing in WWE. He accomplished that. He had a 400-ish day reign, I think, if memory serves, Um, and he had numerous major big time feuds with the championship. So those are my five in really whatever order you want. I think they're the right five. Let me also mention, and then you, you can follow up here, Chris, what Marcus's was, and he gave his an order, but I'll just list them. Also, uh, Shawn Michaels and Razor Ramon on his list, Bret Hart, Rick Rude and Mr. Perfect, who I think Mr. Perfect deserves a lot of consideration Mm, as well. Yes. I think we all named a bunch of really good people. I will tell you my biggest problem with yours is honky tonk, man. I mean, I get it. Like he had a long run and he was a chicken shit heel and it made it really interesting. But when we're talking about best, I don't think he deserves to be in the list of the best. Not my Mount Rushmore, not my top five.
2: So the, Mr. Perfect was also very here. The guys I had just on the outside that there was hard to narrow down. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mr. Perfect. Jericho, Edge, and The Miz. And most of those guys, it's a longevity thing. Like, right, Jericho had it nine times. I think The Miz has the most, I think The Miz has the record for the most days as IC champ. And then Edge, who we talked about on his on his last match. To me, when I think of Edge, I think of tag teams and intercontinental less than world championship mm-hmm. Edge. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, to me, it was, when I, when I think of the IC title, like, what are the moments I think of? And it's, a, it's, the, it's the IC title being thrown off the bridge. It's Cody Rhodes bringing it back. It's Macho Man Steamboat. It's Razor Ramon in the ladder match. And it's Honky Tonk Man ultimately losing it. So th- that's why I went with those five. Because it's a very difficult belt to kind of grade because who are the greatest world champions of all time is, is easy. You know, you have all the best to choose from, but mm-hmm. we're not choosing The Rock at his peak or Triple H at his peak you kind of got, I, I'm trying to evaluate what people did as IC champion. People like Jericho and edge are difficult because they are many time, uh, world champions as well. So I, I just, it, it was, it was difficult. I tried to keep it within, like when I think of that belt, what are the moments I think of? Mm-hmm. And, and, and those are the people I ultimately go.
0: Uh, I should note, because you mentioned it, the Miz is 25 days away. So he needs another reign and he needs to hold the title for at least a month from passing Pedro Morales For most combined days as Intercontinental Champion. Right now, he is number two. And he's 60 days clear. He's 60 days clear of Don Morocco. He's 140 days above Honky Tonk Man and Gunther, plus or minus a couple days.
2: Does he have the most total reigns? I thought he had one of those records. He has
0: eight total reigns. Jericho has nine. So he's second most total reigns, second most combined days. And Jericho, despite having nine reigns with the title, is 18th on the list. He had nine reigns and a combined reign of 311 days, which speaks to what WWE was doing back then. They changed the title. They hot potatoed it all the time. Um, But he was synonymous with the title for a very extended period of time in WWE. So all good people. I I
2: also want to shout out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I also want to shout out someone we talked about earlier on this show. China winning the IC title. Totally. Twice. Mm Mm-hmm. Very very cool. Like that was a moment when I was a kid. She won it in the Good Housekeeping match over uh, Jeff Jarrett. Uh, obviously, I'm not putting her on the mountain Rushmore of IC titles, but like that was that that is an important part of the Intercontinental Championships history.
0: Absolutely, no doubt about it. And now we wait and find out how long Gunther continues to hold it, and who eventually does he drop it to. All very interesting stuff, and a great way to wrap up this edition of the Getting Over wrestling podcast. We broke down a lot. Like I said, it was a five segment show today, but luckily you and I get to take a little bit of a breather because it's just a two episode week. So we will be back on Thursday talking the latest uh, AEW fallout pretty much from all out plus NXT all on Thursday's podcast. Again, we have instant analysis episodes for WWE payback and AEW all out. If you missed them, they are in the podcast feed. But other than that, we're rolling forward here. Allow me to remind you on the way out that the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast is all about the five. So please leave those five-star ratings for us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify on Apple. Take your extra time. Leave a five-star written review because if you do, as you heard earlier, We will read it live right here on the show. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news, analysis, highlights, all of that good stuff. Also, please remember, I happen to love the number five. $5 a month or $50 for the entire year. You can support the Getting Over Wrestling podcast by becoming an official Getting Overhead. Visit buymeacoffee.com slash Over. Sign up, you will get bonus audio, news posts, and again, those contributions to support myself, Chris, and the show. Thank you all for listening to this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast for vintage Chris Panini. This is the Silver Adam Silverstein signing off and leaving you with just three final words. Bye for
2: now.